0: Come in. Hey, man, I'm sorry I made the transit Shut up! You're here! And good thing, because we've got lots of work. It's Employee of the Month with Katie Lazarus, the talk show featuring unforgettable guests with incredible jobs.
1: And now, here's my boss and your host, Katie Lazarus. Hey, Katie. How you doing?
0: I'm good, Jelly D, and I'm especially good because I'm excited to bring you this interview with Lisa Kron, who just won two Tony Awards. She won for Best Book for and Best um, Musical Score for Fun Home. Mm. It was the Best Original Score, and they also won Best Musical for 2015. Yeah, I hear amazing things. Please. Have you seen it? I did, and I was so excited because I got to um, see it on the same day that... Uh, the Supreme Court made sure that gay marriage is legal in every state. It's big
1: day, of, big day. Kind of special. It's a good way to celebrate. Yeah. yeah.
0: And I first saw her in Well, which was an autobiographical play she did that went to Broadway and she also got some Tony nods for. And um, we had done some storytelling shows, though. I don't think she knows that. But I was just so excited to be able to interview her. Uh, it was recorded live at the Writers Guild. So here's a chance to get to peek behind the mastermind and star of Well and then the mastermind, one of the masterminds behind Fun Home. Very, very excited to be with um, Lisa Crone in her office. I believe this is... Is this your office?
1: Yeah, this is like the... Uh, Madeline, George, and I. Uh, this is our sort of library study.
0: Yeah. I was sniffing around trying to find out where you keep the Tonys, and they're not in the fridge.
1: <laughs> they're not in the fridge. They're in the front. They are? Yeah. How come you chose not to keep them in the bathroom? Um, you know, I, um, have, I, I have always put awards away. I've always appreciate when I've gotten awards, but I've never kept them on display. Uh, But um, I do, I do like those Tonys. I don't know. It's surprising to me. It's, and I think it's, I don't, I think if I had gotten them for some, I think if I had, you know, written a Disney musical or whatever, I wouldn't feel the way I do about getting them for Fun Home. I mean, it just never, you know, there's something about the fact that they're an award for commercial theater and... It wasn't anything that I ever thought was in my future, but the fact that fun home won those awards, which seems like the least likely thing that um, i do I do really like them.
0: <laughs> I only asked about the bathroom because um. That way, other people could pretend they're winning it and you won't know it. Like, they'll do their speeches. Like, they'll ah, be like, oh, see? I'm just washing my hands.
1: Oh. <laughs> oh, I thought there was like false modesty to putting them in the bathroom. <laughs> no,
0: I, I think it was just sort of like encouraging other people to just do their speeches. Oh, now in I feel like I
1: should put them in the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> no, now they just have to do it publicly. Like, what would I say? What would I do? Right. Or maybe when I go into the bathroom. Yeah. Yeah, other so then can they can. In the living room, yeah. yeah.
0: So hopefully you'll get incontinence or something that you know. That's what I'm hoping. Yeah, that does sound good. That sounds like a good plan. (laughs) Definitely. Um, I first became intrigued with your work um, hearing about the Verizon play you staged. Oh yeah, just because I have such a a venomous relationship Mm -hmm, with, mm -hmm. I'm so conflict-avoidant except in one area of my life and that Mm -hmm, is with Verizon. mm -hmm, Um, I was just curious, who is your uh, provider
1: now that you've already staged one show about Verizon? I do. I do still have. Um, I, I have DSL from Verizon. Like, who has DSL wow. anymore? But I do. Yeah. Wow. And a landline. Who's your phone service now? Well, I have a landline through Verizon, but I have an at
0: t cell phone. Yeah. So after staging an entire play about a woman who's in conflict with yes, well, you although know, it's not really, about they're, all that, the same. Right they're all the same. They're all the same. You know. I had no idea that all corporations are... Let me clue you in on that. I really actually wanted to ask more about when you made the transition, and I sort of... I don't know enough about the theater world, so I can only talk as a comedian. You have such an um, innate talent for storytelling and for comedy, and sometimes this is a generalization, but sometimes I find people in theater very contrived in their humor, or it feels mm-hmm. like they're acting, and they can act funny, meaning mm-hmm. they can almost do an impression of humor. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, you made this transition from darkly, I would say first from
1: very funny to darkly funny. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to hear about that transition. I sort of found my way down to the East Village to the WoW Cafe, legendary lesbian theater collective. And um, I was, you know, just like standing on stage and telling stories. And my my family is all funny storytellers. You know, my family loves to tell a funny anecdote. And I had been sort of honing these anecdotes uh, for my whole life, basically. And then I was telling them on stage. And, um, you know, my first thing was trying to figure out how to be consistently funny. I mean, the first show I did at Wow, um, it was like two nights at 11 o'clock at night. Um, And uh, I just had a, I didn't really rehearse it. I just had like a list of the these funny stories that I've been honing for many, many years. And um, and I rehearsed some songs, some funny songs, and then I performed it, and it went fantastically and I was like, "Wow, I am a genius i don't need to do i don't need to do anything I just need to stand on stage and just pearls fall from my mouth <laughs> and then the next thing uh, i did I did another show like eight months later, and um it was not good and then what was that show And what uh, wasn't good about it oh it was just not that funny. It was just, you know, really kind of strained and horrible, and I just, and I couldn't figure out what I had done differently. Um, And then there were, you know, all kinds of places to perform in the East Village then, and I just went from club to club, and I, you know, did variety nights at WoW and did all kinds of stuff, and, you know, learned like comedians learn through trial and error. Yeah, I really do like in your trajectory t- to uh,
0: comedians, to good comedians that are comedians that I like who began to dig deeper later as they went along.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was really interesting in that. And I wasn't, you know, I did a little bit of work in comedy clubs, but not so much. I mean, I remember the first time I went to a comedy club and the, like the, the shock of realizing the pace of punchlines that I needed to come up with. Totally. And I wasn't particularly interested in it. Um, I was interested in, and I, and I was telling stories, but I was also, you know, I had all these different artifacts that I would talk about, and then I would sing songs, and I would show slides, and I would do characters. Um, and I liked that kind of meandering kind of style, but the thing that I was really interested in was, um, and I feel like you'll really understand this, um, I mean, I remember the first time I was on stage by myself, Uh, the shocking feeling of realizing that when I stopped talking, nothing was going to happen and that you have to hold, you know, what it is to hold people's attention. And I think the first phase of that is that you think you just need to keep talking, you know, you just go, 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 go. And in that trajectory, you know, somewhere in those years, like three or four years in, I heard some comedian on television talking about being a comedian and he said it takes seven years to be a good comedian. And I was like, oh, I'm pretty funny now. But then, when I had been doing it for seven years, then I, I remember, like, the moment on stage where I was like, oh, 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 this is what it is. And it's that stage presence thing where you, um, you leave a pause and you let the audience fill in the blank. And that kind of uh, mastery, basically, of um, being able to hold attention without doing something, being able to create... That imaginative space and letting, you know, first of all, the thing that you do of sort of coalescing people's attention and gathering them together, and then, you know, sort of moving it the the way you can move it and the way you can let them fill in the blanks. You know, that's the most satisfying thing, of course, to be able to get that laugh and then follow it with the laugh of the actual punchline, which was not the thing that they filled in, you know, to get that next laugh. That's really, really satisfying. And, And then, you know, the kind of thing that you learn when you're on stage a lot, which is how to, when people are not particularly interested in seeing you, how to make yourself, you know, how you...
0: Can you give a specific example of that, what you mean by that?
1: I guess one of the things was, you know, uh, learning to breathe on stage, and that had to do with a physical relaxation and allowing yourself to be permeated by people's attention as opposed to the way you can sort of, you know, I think yeah. if you get panicked, you can kind of hold your breath and make yourself impenetrable. And, and, and I think people actually can't see you when you're like that. And I, so, you know, the skill of, you know, feeling like you're feeling like I could feel people's attention wane and physically sort of letting my breath drop through my body I don't know, I, can, I don't know how to describe it, like I can feel what it is to do it and, and, and uh, making myself permeable to people's attention again. And I think that exchange, um, that, that you are in that kind of a profound relationship with people when you're on stage, um, if you're talking directly to them, I mean, I, I, you do it also, I suppose, if you're acting in a play. De- definitely people do. Really great actors do it. It's all artifice, and yet it is an authentic exchange. And, be, and from coming from WoW, where, the, where, you know, the thing that when I first saw shows at WoW that really, like, just blew my mind was what it was to watch people on stage who didn't know the rules, quote-unquote, of being on stage. They didn't know how you were supposed to act in a play. yeah. And the, you know, the, the sort of, sometimes sort of car wreck kind of fascination with that. And that really informed so much of my work through, well, I think that metatheatricality that I was so interested in was that difference, that energetic difference between being a person on stage performing and a person in a room with other people. Yeah. And shifting back and forth between those two types of energy um, you know, in um, 101 Humiliating Stories in 2.5-Minute Ride and in Well, all of them have that device where I seem to be talking uh, directly to the audience. But then I drop even that direct address perf- uh, performance persona in the moments that I get, you know, the, the conceit is that I get lost, that I lose track of the performance. And the sort of electricity of what that is. And then because I am in control of it and I can pick people up again, uh, what I was interested in was the sort of DNA that I, f- I do feel is like hardwired in us of, of watching theater. Even people who don't, ha- who don't think that they know anything about that or that they care about that. Yes, that it feels the electricity of what it, that that contract of of watching a live performance, particularly a theatrical performance, the way the audience that that jolt of that particular electricity goes through an audience when it feels like the performer drops it, when they lose it, and then if I pick it back up, then then it's an exhilarating theatrical experience. Right to
0: to know when when they're in control and, and not in control. Meaning you as an actor, right, as an audience person, you will go along for the ride if you know that the performer is in control ultimately, but it it feels exciting to have that shift back and forth
1: a little bit. theater can't, if you play with that thing where you lose track of the performance, part of the reason that's electric is that what the audience feels is what they take for granted otherwise, which is that the performance is absolutely dependent on them. And that you're walking a tightrope together. You're walking a tightrope. If you mess up, or if they walk away, it's you know it's it's horrible. It's horrible to watch a performance go bad.
0: It's uh, one of the most painful experiences. One thing I was going to ask is, in well, you have a um, partner on stage and your mm-hmm. your mom. And what are the benefits of having someone else on stage? And what are the fears that come up? Because you've gone from solo performing, right, right, to having someone else there.
1: Yeah, I mean, at this with point, your own work. at this point, I much prefer being on stage with somebody else. Um, partly because I just like, um, I enjoy that. You know, I, f- I feel like I went to the graduate school of Jane Howdyshell, who played my mother, and Lee Silverman, who directed it. You know, like they, I learned. You know, Jane is, she's so extraordinary. And so to do a scene with her uh, is just, you know, profound acting pleasure.
0: Right. And it's like playing tennis with someone who's better than you. Yeah,
1: totally.
0: (laughs) Totally. How did um, doing your own work, or I should say autobiographical work, Mm -hmm. um, both with 2.5-minute ride and with Well, um, how did it feel writing about people, writing about your personal life? when it's not really, how do I say this? Here, I'll use Stephen Colbert as an example. The actor (laughs) Mm -hmm. is, you know, or the persona is not the person, um, really, even though they share the same name. Right. And to what extent is that true in autobiographical works, and your autobiographical works?
1: Right. That's a really interesting comparison because, um, uh, and I'm going to remember that, because, uh, yeah, I didn't... I I didn't feel like I was... um, I mean, the work was... All that work was drawn from autobiographical material. But the point to me was never to tell stories about my family. The point was to use those stories to make a theater piece that would explore certain ideas. They were theatrical essays in a certain way. And in them, I had to create a character of myself who didn't know something and... Um, Because I think that's the essence of a theatrical character. The audience has to see more than that character can see. The play has to be bigger than any character in the play. And because I wasn't interested in just telling stories, although storytelling is an ancient and, um, you know eternally fascinating form, I think theater does something different, and that was the thing that I was interested in. So the character in 2.5 Minute Ride is going to try to, um, I mean, not that the audience would ever put think of it in this way, but that character is going to try to restore the broken world of her father by... Telling this story and, and, and making a record of his past. And, and I just, that can't happen. And, and we see it not happen in the thing. And in Well, this character is going to try to individuate from her mother by making this play with her mother on stage. And then it doesn't work and everything falls apart. And you see things happen to her. So, and, and when, my, when my actual mother was reading that play when it was in development, there was a moment where, you know, she was sort of upset about something in it, and I was like, okay, first of all, are you reading all the lines or just my lines and your lines? That's number one, because you probably need to read the whole thing. And, and then at some point she said to me, I didn't know that you felt like that. And I said, you know, Mom, I'm not just the lines that I say. I'm the entire play. And, and we actually did a Q&A one time where a woman said to me, She's very upset with me. And she said, you should listen to what Kay says in that monologue. And I said, I wrote that monologue so I know exactly what she says. <laughs> I like that you didn't say, like, I
0: have a therapist already. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I just want to give some context because I have, uh, we have listeners from not only all over the world, but listeners who, who have I have so many different types of guests. Um, so I, I just want to give some context about your plays. So if you could just give a quick summation of what "2.5 Minute Ride" and "Well" is about, that way I don't. Even though I've seen both, I don't want to um, s- screw them up in front of the person. Be like, "That's not what it was about. It was a metaphor for
1: how I feel." And how
0: I <laughs> right. um, but "2.5 Minute Ride" being about y- your father and also, yeah, and yeah. Him.
1: I mean, they're they're very. I I feel like we could have sold so many more tickets if, I, if they could ever be. this, They were extremely difficult to describe. Um, these plays because they keep sort of unmaking themselves. But um, one way to describe it is a uh, 2.5-minute ride um, intersperses three stories, three sets of stories. One is about my... Uh, m- 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 the whole play, in a certain way, is about, or putatively about the relationship that I... My relationship with my um, dad who died last month, actually, Who's um, was a German-Jewish um, Holocaust refugee. So it's about a trip that we took together to his hometown in Germany, where he, he left from there when he was 15 years old, and um, uh, then to Auschwitz, where his parents uh, were sent um, and where they were killed. The next set of stories is about our my Midwestern extended family's annual trip to the Cedar Point Amusement Park in Sandusky, Ohio, where... I would say well into his 80s, my dad enjoyed riding the roller coasters. And, the, and then uh, w- one time when we went to this um, park together and in, the, in the, the trip that I talk about in the show, I went with a videographer, Mary Paterno, actually, um, to video my dad doing that. And then the, because I was going to make a video about his life. And then the third set of stories uh, is about my brother's engagement and subsequent wedding to a woman he met in the Jewish Singles Room of America online. So it intersects those uh, three stories. And I was interested in his history, but also, I mean, there's a lot of things to say about it, but I was interested in a way of talking about issues around the Holocaust that weren't sort of... um, I, I, I felt at a certain point like we have very codified ways we feel like we're supposed to react to that subject and how to tell those stories in a way that would be disarming, that would that would have a, a kind of a, an immediacy of um, a, in, in which I could disarm that kind of codified reaction.
0: I also liked that it had relevance for people who, I mean, particularly because you're from Michigan and there's mm-hmm. a huge population of, uh, you know, Palestinians and Arabs as mm-hmm. well as Jews. And I mm-hmm. there was something just so beautiful about having a story that is so relevant today for other people who have had to escape or whose parents were refugees mm-hmm. and had yes. to flee. And, and I, I really liked learning about what is it like to be the child of someone yeah who, who comes from this background. And I thought that that was universally relevant in your work.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think one of the things that was uh, I mean, I did that show a lot, and I did it in a lot of different places. And one of the things that was interesting was feeling different constituencies. Like there were reactions from a certain kind of reaction from people who have aging parents, certain kind of reaction from people from the Midwest, particularly who had been to the Cedar Point amusement park, a certain kind of reaction from gay and lesbian people. Um, and and so it was interesting, and it was you know it was always gratifying to hear them. When the audience was really mixed with all of those people and listening to them inform each other's reactions was really, really fun. And well? Well, uh, focused on. The, there's, the, there's a character uh, that's essentially my mother um, in that show. And it had to do with, you know, that one was really impossible to. Um, describe, and every description of it sounded like a play that I personally would rather just poke up my own eyes and see, like, um, you know, Mothers and Daughters in Healing. You know, it's just like, oh, that sounds terrible. Um, Chicken soup for the mothers and daughters. (laughs) Exactly. So, um, uh, it was about, um, uh, you know, as the character of me said in the play, Illness and Wellness, and why some people... Uh, are sick and some people are well and some people are sick and then they get better and some people don't and it had to do with sort of the history of chronic illness in my family and then also this neighborhood that i grew up in in lansing michigan which had been um sort of on the cusp of uh you know there was blockbusting going on in the 60s and when we moved there my mother um organized uh, with a bunch of other neighbors and essentially created... She started this neighborhood association and started this, what remains today, a very healthy, uh, stable, racially integrated neighborhood, and that's where I grew up. And so... Um, s- and it had this very meta... So there was a character of my mother on stage played by the brilliant Jane Howdy Shell who ap- appeared to... I mean, sometimes people would say to Jane afterwards, um, what is it like to be in a play? And of course, Jane's been like a, you know, an extraordinary <laughs> actress. But the people really thought she was my mother. But
0: that's like, you know, telling a memoirist that their book is so compelling it reads like a novel. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? She was so
1: she was so, so good. good. She was so amazing. She really was. And your the conceit mother. of it was that she was just had been plopped on stage, and you know, she and and that she would talk to the audience, and um, and then there were these actors on stage. There was this ensemble of four actors, and I this character for me was theoretically, you know, also staging. The these these scenes. One of the difficult things about the play, which had such a strange form, was figuring out how because the, the whole thing derails. The thing, my, the play that the, the performance piece that my character theoretically is going to put on, it totally falls apart. But in order for that to happen, we had to make the audience understand what it was supposed to be and what it was supposed to be was <laughs> so made up and strange. But uh, we f- figured that out, and it was that play was really fun to do. It was really fun to play. Um, that character who cannot control what's going on on stage, and people would say to me sometimes, or they, you know, they'd see me and Jane, and they would say, "Oh, Jane, you were so amazing," and they would say, "Well, you, you were just yourself." And I was like, well, I would just look at them like, "What did you just see? Like the, the actors um, revolted? They left? Like I was like, what? Nothing that just, <laughs> there were all these things that happened that were obviously made up. How do you think I wasn't acting that? <laughs> I, I, you know, then I would think, well, I guess I just take it as a compliment. But
0: I know, but it, it, there is this tendency for people to undermine because they don't realize how much work goes into making something look effortless. Yeah, yeah. Um, what's it like now, though, to have all these other people acting in your shows? Do they send you their shows? Do they invite you to come see it? How do you, how do you respond? Um, oh,
1: uh, to, people to do those shows, them? Um, I'm delighted, and I don't see them very much, um, if I can help it. And I, I don't. Um, you know, I wouldn't
0: want to. But I don't I'm just object.
1: Curious. It doesn't. You know, people often think it fe- it's because it feels personal, like it's, but it, it's not. It's not that. It's it's because they're very complicated to perform, and it's easy to perform them quite badly. Um, and well, is particularly tricky. I mean, it took me and and Lee Silverman, and our dramaturg John Diaz, really a few years to figure out the mechanisms of that play, and many of them were quite counterintuitive, and. It's you know it's a play that sort of explodes um, ideas or the human tendency to want to um, judge people who have physical illness and then also certain kinds of um, uh, sort of reflexive racism mm-hmm. and it's very easy for that play to judge people who are sick and be kind of racist and so that's also really painful so you to must watch.
0: you must really enjoy high school performances of it
1: um, you know I really <laughs> enjoy that they're done yes. but I don't need to go see them
0: um, when you got to do fun home I imagine it was a relief in some ca- capacity to be focusing on someone else um, and at the same time a burden to be working with their autobiographical work
1: yeah I mean we and I'm, I'm I referring to Alison Bechdel. right Jeanine and I couldn't really think about Allison's family too much. I mean, yeah, it was much more... If we would have thought of it... You know, we just had to assume we had the license to do that, that that was between Allison and her family. Um,
0: it seems clear that that, was, that license was there. I mean, I think... It, to an outsider I, who knows nothing about the situation. <laughs> yeah,
1: I mean, I... I, I, I Well, you know, her family has come to see it, and they really love it, and they they have actually a very sweet relationship to it. Um, What is,
0: what, can you describe that relationship?
1: um, Well, they've come uh, several times, but I remember when they first came to the public, and it was her two brothers, you know, and then um, her father's sister and um, different, her cousins and, you know, different relatives, and we were, Janine and I were Beside ourselves, and for the cast, it was surreal. Uh, And I think they were very wary about it. But um, I believe that what happened is that you know musicals. You know, I think we what we made is very different from the book. It's made up completely, and yet all of it is from the book. I mean, it, it's, you know, it's, it, it's what we set out to do, that we had to invent a new thing, but it is her book, and it is her story. But what musicals do... I mean, I think the reason that Jeanine and I felt inherently that it could be a musical is that there's an undercurrent of yearning that runs through that book. So for the musical, that rises to the surface, and that is foregrounded because emotion, emotional yearning drives a musical. And I think for that family... They, ha- they have had an emotional catharsis around his death that happened, um, you know, 30 years after he died.
0: I find, and this is, I'm not a musical theater geek, so I'm, I'm just putting this with a grain of salt, but um, personally, sometimes music, whether it's actually in a film or um, a musical, um, takes me out of the moment. Mm-hmm. And I, it feels like contrived intimacy. Mm-hmm. And for others, they can feel that way about... Um, on the History Channel when they go back and do a... Um, reenactment. Reenactment. Uh-huh. And, of course, the opposite happens here, where it's um, so compelling. And, I, you know, I felt that same way in Hamilton. It doesn't have to be even a similar kind of, you know, right. genre, but, but in that it's a musical. Yeah. I was able to laugh and cry. Yeah. You know, in, yeah. in both. Um, I wanted to ask if, if you struggled with those issues at all in terms of... It's your first musical. Uh-huh were there things you were worried about of taking people out of the moment in terms of motion or, um, I don't know, balancing, like, when do I want someone to feel X and when do I want someone to feel Y? Does that come up at
1: all? I mean, that's the work of writing a musical, I think. You know, that's the work of it, is figuring out what moment is meant to be musicalized and how to musicalize it. And, you know, Janine Tesori is a master, and she's the, the greatest of the greats, and, um... And she, I mean, I think she and I are rigorous about that kind of emotional truth in different ways. We had different sets of skills um, that were very complementary to each other. And then Sam Gold, who directed yeah. it, then he also is like that. So I think the three of us, um, you know, the f- f- looking for that, I think we all have pretty high bullshit meters. Um, and also similar values around exactly those kind of questions.
0: Um, but I think that's if- exactly
1: what we were looking for all the time was emotional, was the right emotional truth, the right, emo- the truest emotional story. And, you know, a lot of the time we'd, we'd be wrestling with what is a moment and, and we would, we had to, we spent, you know, days and weeks and months figuring out, is it this or is it this or is it this or is it this? And it's easy to find something that feels roughly like it might be the thing without actually like you know being that rigorous and saying that actually is not right that's not that's not the the thing that we're dealing with here that's not the right thing let's think about this story more until we get to the the what what is at the bottom of this
0: Another part of Fun Home that I was so um, moved by, and I know I'm not alone in this, it's sort of like saying I love the uh, rainbows, but <laughs> um, and I don't mean metaphorical ones. but um, it was the first time I had seen um, female sexuality in terms of being a lesbian, not through the prism of um, a heterosexual model mm-hmm. as to what it should look like. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was really moving to see lesbians be able to be themselves and still be sexual mm-hmm. and not be um, one-dimensional, but mm-hmm. also um, I know that there are tons and tons and tons of television programs. I'm just kidding, but there are mm-hmm. several television programs, um, you know, a- about the issue, but they, but there is still this, like, heterosexist norm, I find, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. put on them, and I wanted to know how—I have so many questions, but I guess the first one would be, you didn't have a template for how to do that, except um, you had a template for all of these other things that you drew on. Um,
1: did you need one for that or did I not I think I matter? had a template through years at the WoW Cafe where you know, when I when I first like saw the Split Bridges Company and then when I was first at Wow when we were making shows, everybody was making shows. You know, the the great revelation of seeing the Split Bridges Company in the 80s, the moment, the theatrical moment that changed my life, was that that brilliant work, the thing, there's so much brilliant theatricality in it, but that I think the central thing that just, like, drew me to that world like a magnet, even though I was just, like, sort of freshly out of the Midwest and really scared of everything and, you know... I you know terrified at the same time I was um you know just like like a homing device going toward it was that they were operating from a completely different paradigm and it was a lesbian paradigm and they were not operating within the heterosexual paradigm and yelling inside of that paradigm, hey, I'm here, we're here, we're here, look right. at us, we're also here, we're also people. And and I and I talk about this a lot. Um, I was just at the Dramatist Guild convention and there was, you know, we were talking about the parody issue, the gender parody issue in the theater and we were, um, you know, there were a lot of different... Panels about that and women writing and, um, you know, I've, so I've been saying this a lot recently, but I'm, I'm really tired of, or I'm wary, not tired of, I'm really wary of this phrase about women's voices or the voices of people of color or the voices of gay people. We need to hear these voices. We need these people to tell their stories. It grates on me, and it took me a while to figure out why I hate it so much. And it's because of that thing that what that presumes is there's this universal paradigm, and then there are these other voices that are important, too. And I can't fucking stand it. I think what, what I'm interested in about, about having all kinds of people who are writing and having their work produced and performing is that I want to hear the story of the world as it looks from this person's perspective, this person's perspective, this person's perspective. And that's what people were doing at WOW. They were telling the story of the world from their perspective with whatever kind of goofy plays they were doing. Right. But the authority to just take for granted that where you are, wherever you stand, for your purposes as a writer, is the center of the entire universe, that's what I'm interested in. And that's what I learned at WOW. And you know, with the Five Lesbian Brothers, the theater company that I was one of the founding members of, and we started at WOW, and we did all kinds of plays, we put lesbian sexuality on stage all the time, also from that paradigm. And, um, you know, then within that, it could be, uh, and it often was in those plays, a sexuality that had been twisted by internalized sexism and and homophobia. But it was from that, the... You, you know, the thing that made it not self-hating, the wor- way that made the work not self-hating was that it was told from uh, a voice that believed it had complete authority to tell that story as a central story. And so it was that perspective that I brought with me to telling Allison's story and putting her... And, and as we were working on that scene... And, and you know... Then there was this other thing that happened, which was that because we were writing a musical and because it was going to be in this mainstream situation, I also then brought to that a kind of a fear of how that, you know, it's one thing to... I had a fear of how that work was going to be received by a largely straight audience. And I was wary. So, for instance, Ring of Keys... I originally told Janine I don't want to write that song because I didn't know how to do it so that the audience wouldn't laugh at the butch. And,
0: and just for, for folks who have not seen Fun Home yet, um, Ring of Keys is a song about identity and this young uh, girl, which is a young version of, of Alison Bechdel, um, sees an older woman. And she's able to connect with her and say, there's something about this woman that I, I, I sense is similar to me and I'm not quite sure what it is. And
1: because she's a child, she focuses on the ring of keys. her ring of keys. And then her ring of keys and her boots and her jeans and her short haircut and, um, yeah. Um, so I was very wary about that. Uh, and Janine was like, you have to do it anyway. I mean, it was the great thing about, you know, Sam and Janine were both so completely interested in the integrity of that story from a lesbian point of view. And they had no sort of preemptive fear of um, a lesbophobic... Response, which was very helpful.
0: Also, because it's in this textured, larger picture. I mean, sort of before you're talking about telling stories versus theater, which is, I would argue, is a book, and therefore it's chapters. So you have lots of stories, and here you have lots of stories. So you also have. A ma- I mean, you know, I'm changing my major to Joan. Right. Is a more sensual song about you know falling madly in love for the first
1: time. <laughs> and yeah, although I would, one of the things I was really Keen about with that song because yeah. people would talk about it. They say it's about her falling in love, and I would say no, no, it's about her having sex. Love it, it. is okay, about got it. sex, and I said this is <laughs> a really, right. really, really important because this is the place. This is the you know it's following the play. You know the story hinges on the moment where she reaches that moment of sexuality and opens out into her life, and her father can't cross that thing and what it does to him, which eventually leads to his suicide um, later in life. But, but I was also very, I wanted to be extremely clear that we were talking about sex.
0: I love that you clarified because first love is so often sex. And in this one, it's such a striking chord because of what's going on in the father's life of how he, I mean, it's not only that he's gay, it's also how he's, um, you know, dating younger men, and by dating, that's a very diplomatic term for what I mean.
1: Right, Um, right, right. So
0: there's there's two different things going on for him.
1: Right, and that you can, and that if you can't physically have an open physical embodiment of your love, if you can't express your sexuality, your physical sexuality, it will crush you. And the idea that gay people, and particularly lesbians, that their emotional lives are not connected to their physical sexual lives felt crucial to me, that, that that was an idea that could not exist in this play, that the play had to deal with sex. And that and, and also because, you know, there's been that sort of idea that lesbians don't have sex, that well, we right. don't know what that is. And so I also wanted to see it. And so we don't actually quite see them have sex, except that I said to Sam, I was like, okay, listen, no whispering and not that he would do this, but I was like, we need to see them and And this was at such a five lesbian brothers thing. I was like, goofy, awkward. She's never dated anybody. She's never she doesn't know how to do this. You want to see that lust, that pent up lust with not a single skill, just you want to see her just like pounce on her and it needs to be funny. You need to feel how much pent-up desire there is, and then you need to see it come out. In the stupidest, goofiest, funniest ways.
0: But I, I, I completely um, appreciate what you're saying about the fact that like lesbian sensuality is either. <laughs> I feel like over sexualized in a very heteronormative way, like the L word or something like that. Right. Um, where they're just so bored. Well, it's a performance,
1: but it's a, mm-hmm. so it's a, although, like
0: porn performance. Yeah, although I was also going to say I know a lot of gay women in LA who do look like, <laughs> do look like that. Sure. Um, and then on the the other side, right, where it's completely asexualized and cut off because right. um, either gay or, uh, men or right. um,
1: just s- like hetero, gauzy, men like or women don't have Whispering know how to do in it. French, heading. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever, <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. So I, I, I really, um. Anyways, it's it's fabulous to be able to talk about those things and also see the generational. Um, yeah,
1: I think one of the things about having a sex scene that's funny is it makes it a subjective scene. It makes it a scene that people have an empathetic response to. They identify with it, as opposed to a scene, as opposed to a sexy sex scene of certain kinds that people can. Objectify that it starts to look like perform- performances of lesbian sexuality, which is what they pictured. But, you know, particularly in the beginning of this run of Fun Home, surprisingly to me, the, the scenes between the college aged Allison and Joan, so incredibly perfectly played by Roberta Calendres, um, th- to watch straight audiences, like if they hadn't, and the structure of the show is, you know, it's not, it's not linear. So an audience might, a more traditional audience might, might take them a little while to get on the ride. That was the moment always, that if they hadn't gotten on the ride already, they would. They would just identify with those two in a direct way. Like they would feel like young love to them. I do think that's also about the times. I don't know that people, I don't know that those straight audiences would have been able to do that even five years ago, because they were a lesbian couple. But now they just get on that ride. And I do think that having a funny, awkward sex scene helps people feel like, they, like they're inside of it rather than watching it.
0: And like you said, it's a really textured play that is about uh, you know uh, losing a parent, losing a parent to suicide, not knowing why they killed themselves, not knowing why a parent's life went so quickly, never being able to ask them, so right. that the life going too short. Then there's a... Very traditional family in a particular era that didn't talk about things this right, is like right, pre- right right really right. therapy era and and you know Allison's at the burgeoning, the beginning of this sort of identity politics right um, and that really right. happens in, in her generation, starting right there. and then you also have you know how does this why is this mom in this relationship? I mean there's so many different facets to it um that you don't go in saying I'm only going in to see this one particular issue. It's not an issue-driven play,
1: right? Right. 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 No. No. Not at all. <laughs>
0: um, so, what are you w- working on next? Actually, sorry. Before you tell me what you're working on next, what was it like performing at the same time that you have you all have responsibilities on the other end um, of you know writing and
1: and um, it was the gra- I, I, It was the pinnacle of my theatrical life. It was so great. I was doing Fun Home was happening uh, at the Public in the Newman Theater. And uh, Lear de Bessonet's brilliant production of Good Person of Sichuan, which we had done at La Mama the year before, um, came to the uh, public. And um, it was in the Martinson, and they were happening at exactly the same time. And it was, it was amazing. I thought, either this is going to be the best idea ever, or it's going to be terrible, and I'm going to be trapped up here in this theater um, needing to get down but we did all this kind of crazy scheduling around it so and that play was really long so it started earlier so and both shows would get out at the same time and I'd go down and, I mean it gave me an excuse to be in the lobby when Fun Home got out which was really fun and then I, you know like the first couple of nights that they people would come up to me and they would say um, oh, I really, you know, I really enjoyed the show. And I'd be like, I, I the first night, only the first night, it was like, which show? Because, and then, but people didn't know if they seen fun on them. They didn't know if I was a good person. If they were a good person, they didn't, know. and they would look at me like, "What kind of an asshole are you?" And so then I never asked like, again. You're like a successful one, <laughs> right? Then I never asked again. And sometimes I would have conversations, and at the end of the conversation, I wouldn't have any idea which show we had just talked about. But it was really, really amazing and i also used to because in the public the monitors um you can flip the channel so you can listen to all the theaters so i would go into the bathroom um i would go into the bathroom uh when i wasn't on stage of good person and i could um listen to fun home on the monitor um oh my god it was it was the it was it was the greatest and that production of good person was so extraordinary and i love that place so much and listening to that play every night, which I did for those two runs, one at La Mama and one... Um, um, oh, here's the sound of my little dog walking around. Django. Think, why don't you go down? so sweet. Um, he wants and, to come um, up. So it was, uh, it was really... It, it was the greatest. It's how,
0: how does winning a Tony, winning two Tonys, um, change your life, if it changes your life economically? Um, in a...
1: major way um you know the prizes like that are worth a lot of money they don't um you know i have a very um sort of i i you know those kinds of things i really keep them at arm's length uh you know, when I was a kid, and I was asked to be in the honor society, I refused because I was like, "I don't under what is the purpose of the honor society?" And they were like, "It's so you can do good works." And I was like, "I don't know why you have a certain have to have a certain grade point average to do community service." I I refused, and um, you know that I-, I I've always and they're you know they're they're random. Those things are random. Yes, and um, uh, they're punishing in a lot of ways. Um, but you've been on both sides of the fence
0: and you've worked a very, very, very long time to achieve the type of success you have.
1: Yeah, I mean, yes. I think it's,
0: I think I, it's fair to, it's, to be able to be comfortable making a
1: living in the theater. I am comfortable with that. I'm happy for my success. It's not, it's not that... Um, I'm very happy for this and as I, you know, I said at the beginning, like to win it for Fun Home was actually incredibly meaningful to me. And I think, feel like the way that people cared about the show... Was really meaningful. Also, our producers, the integrity with which they have produced this show, um, I've I've never seen anything like it. You know, I'll tell you something. Um, uh, when we were, first of all, the decision to do Ring of Keys on the Tonys was amazing. I mean, there's a way that it couldn't have been anything else for a variety of reasons. There was, there's not a like a a big show-stopping number that could have gone on. The commercial. The commercial, but it's weird out of context. (laughs) You know, it's very strange, but there are producers who would have done that. And I think the Tonys, you know, the the CBS people originally wanted them to do that. And I think we realized that it had to be Ring of Keys and that if CBS said no, that they were going to fight for it because the only reason not to do it would be homophobia. You know, there'd be no justification to not put it on there. But... Um, so, because the show's so weird, you know, I, I, had, I sort of wrote a little fake scene um, for the beginning of it, um, which was like scenes that are in the show, but it was a little different so that the audience would have context for what they were watching. And in the actual play, Beth, uh, who plays adult Allison, says um, something about, um, uh, she, she uses the word, she was an old school butch. And I took that phrase out Because I felt like a larger audience would, I didn't want people to step out of it. I didn't, but I I wanted to make it clear what it was, and I put in a a bunch of language um, from the book, which we didn't put in the show. Mm -hmm. But um, so anyway, I changed the language up and I took the word butch out. So you have very limited time to rehearse for the Tonys, um, the actual television rehearsal. It's very high pressure, Um, and uh, because you have to do so much so fast, and there's so much writing on it. So
0: you were like, let me give the actors new lines. <laughs> yeah, so they had that. Yes, exactly.
1: You're like, "So Corbeth, how can I make this more challenging for?" Corbett Malone who was given every day that that show was in development, which was about 17 years, she had new lines, <laughs> radically different lines every day. So, um, but anyway, we were um, in the rehearsal and I all of a sudden looked at our, you know, two of our producers, um uh Chris and Barbara Whitman, and I said, "I took the word Butch out. Is that was that a mistake?" And they said, no, it was a mistake. Um, and I said, okay, that's what I thought, that's what I thought. And then they kept rehearsing, and we were on a very like quick time clock, and then Kristen turned to me, like I'd say two minutes later, and she said, do you feel compromised by this? And I said, no, and I had cha- I had tweaked the language a little bit more. I said, no, I'm fine. But the fact that she asked me that in that moment, I thought, this is unbelievable. This is unbelievable that she is prepared to open up this discussion at this moment. And that's the integrity with which they, uh, you know, have produced this show. And that is hard on Broadway with that amount of money at stake. It is really difficult. It's very rare. So that also makes the Tony feel earned, I guess, as much as something like that. You know, it is a flip of the dice in a certain way. There's so many things that go into it, but... It does feel good in that way.
0: And do you get paid to write the pilots now, no, or do you do them on spec?
1: No, w- no, I'm trying to write one pilot on spec. Okay. Uh, no, uh, I'm trying. I'm trying to learn that Is team. that
0: for financial reasons? Is that for creative reasons? Is that for all of the above?
1: I was. I was. There were two options. I was. <laughs> but, I mean, now it feels a little less pressing. But I was, write, I was trying to figure out TV, partly because I took a great... Um, this uh, brilliant playwright Francine Volpe teaches um, playwrights how to write for television. She like watched and watched and watched television and like figured out like how it worked. And then she was like, "Oh, this is what playwrights are doing, and this is why that doesn't work. And here's what I need to tell them so that they can understand how TV functions." So I took her class twice, and then I got kind of a more of an idea of how to. I was like, oh, that's why I'm having a hard time. And then I was really fortunate. I got in the Sundance Episodic Writing Lab, which is a new Sundance lab for television writing. And I did that last year, or I think it was last year. Um, and um, that was also really helpful. That. Yeah, funny. yeah, yeah, you should. It's really great. It's really, really great. And um, so, so I'm, I'm interested in the form, you know, and the way I was interested in figuring out how musicals work I'm interested now in figuring out how television works. But part of what was motivating me for sure was I was like I'm 54 years old and I don't I have to have more money. I you know this yeah. is going this is gonna, this is going to go down badly. Um so so there was also that motivator. It's so depressing to hear that
0: because you're so successful. Well, but Fun Home true. has
1: made that, you know, a, a Tony is going to make a difference. All right, so I mean, that's helpful. I think that's
0: advice for everyone. Yes.
1: That would be my <laughs> career advice. Win, uh, best musical Tony, um, Lisa Kron.
0: This was such a delight. Thank you and Django for, for letting us come <laughs> over, um, and I look forward to um, seeing you soon in whatever capacity, whether it's as you know writer, performer, um, and potentially a, a singer.
1: Oh, well, work on that too. Well, wow, there's a lot of pressure you're putting me under, but okay. I'm sorry, this I'm was always a great a Jew. Great always a Jew at the end, Don't huh? don't don't give that up. <laughs> Stick with it. It's working for you.
0: So what did you think? really my favorite podcast since the last one. I thought it was a fascinating episode. I want to thank all of you for listening. I really want to thank Jelly D and Ian Mazoff for enabling this podcast to happen and I am going to do a shout out to all of you to please give if you can. There are several ways to give. You can donate money. You can also write nice things about us on iTunes and on SoundCloud or however it is you listen to this podcast because those things help because in order for us to continue this labor of love we're going to need a little more support but I do also want to just say thank you to all of you who have been giving. It's been fantastic to have you along for the ride. And we have a whole new season coming up. Joe's Pop, we're going to be there monthly. So check out employeeofthemonthshow.com to find out more. And I think that's it. I think everyone else should just enjoy their day. Yeah, yeah.
1: Get out of here, guys.
0: Yeah. We'll talk to you guys soon. Bye.